almost feel like a little bit of whiplash coming from such a beautiful, delicate moment um, with Bron and Elliot and Ryan. And then you read chapter four of James. I mean, if you were following us with the language in there, it's quite striking, quite in your face. And, um, and James is a little bit like that, isn't he? Have you been with us on this journey? And have you, have you, have you seen week after week? Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's family tenderness in the letter, but there's, it's almost each week um, God comes for us with really full-on instructions, um, really practical, everyday Christian living um, that, that's hard to do in the world that we live in. And so it's just been, the book of James has just been coming for us week after week. And um, it, it's good, though. It's, 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 it's really good for us to have such a practical book coming at us. There's challenges in attempting to follow Jesus in a world that's opposed to him. We need to hear this. And, and chapter 4, as we come to the strong language here, we're gonna, I'll, I'll need to be careful as we go in, but we need to receive it. Um, we need to understand why James is writing this to the Christians in the first century. And we need to do the hard work of thinking whether we do the very same things or just a slightly different version of it and need to hear a similar rebuke coming at us. So you re- are you ready for that? In a lot of the previous chapters, James uses language like dear brothers or brothers and sisters. It's, it's really kind of family. I almost, I almost picture James as this big brother figure who he's, he's got some things that he wants me to hear. And he's, it's like I'm the little brother that needs to be pulled up and spoken to, but I feel like he loves me enough to tell me the truth. And, and so he comes for me. I feel like James is like that big brother. But you get to chapter four and the language is really sharp. Um, it's, it's, it's straight up calling them out from their behaviour and calling them out on what they're doing. I mean, look at verse 4 in chapter 4. Did you just catch that with us? You adulterous people. <laughs> that, that, that's not dear brothers. Like he's really kind of laying in there. You adulterous people. You get down to verse 8 and he's saying, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So it's some really strong language coming at the people he's writing to here. Um, why is James being so strong? Why is he going so hard at them? Um, understanding why James uses the language like adulterous is actually going to be like a doorway we get to walk through to kind of look at the nature of the relationship that we have as God's people with our God. So we're going to try and walk through that doorway and see what we discover. Um, When he says, you adulterous people, the concept of adultery, everyone understands it, you're familiar with it. A married person is unfaithful to their spouse, has an affair with someone who is not their husband or wife, and we know adultery is heavy. Some of you have committed it. Others have had it um, committed against you. Um, And even though we live in a society that's progressive and values freedom and we want to accept everyone, adultery still is one of the most offensive forms of betrayal that a spouse or a partner can commit towards the other one. And yet God chooses to use this very image to speak to his people regularly through history. It's a big theme that comes up in the Bible. God says to his people, you're being adulterous. And when he says that, he's talking about spiritual adultery or adultery of the heart. And if that's the case, if God's people are being adulterous towards him, then that tells you something about the nature of our relationship with our God, doesn't it? 
It tells us that the, the, the relationship that we're in here is like a marriage relationship. It is a covenant relationship. In fact, God gave the whole concept of marriage and the covenant relationship so that we would catch something deep and big about our relationship with him. Look at Isaiah 54 verse 5. That'll come up on the screen. For your maker is your husband. There you go. Look at that one. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Your maker, he's your husband. Have you ever considered your relationship with God in that kind of language? I mean, you go right to the end of scriptures as well and you get in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Do you know the imagery in chapter 21? Um, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride and we're coming down out of heaven to meet with him. It's like a marriage or a consummation of the marriage. Um, that's why you get language in the New Testament as well about this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. You can be scribbling these down as we go there. Can I get 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Thanks, Manny. There it is. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's really similar language to being one flesh, like in the marriage relationship. When you get united to Jesus, you're one with him. It's a covenant relationship. You're now joined to him in the same way. So here's the deal. Our relationship with God is like a marriage. And just like a man and a woman are united in marriage and it is to be exclusive. I mean, that's part of the vows, isn't it? It's, it's, it's to the exclusion of all others. I commit to you. Um, that is what we have stepped into with our God. An exclusive relationship. God requires from us exclusive allegiance. So when God's people through history, and they've done it time and time again, and we're going to be asking the question how we do it, when God's people commit what you'd call idolatry, which is where they go and worship other gods, other idols, God calls it not just idolatry, he calls it adultery. Similar words, but adultery, we get the offence, don't we? It's helpful for us to hear it that way. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says this, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. That's heavy, isn't it? Yeah, this is how God says, this is what you're doing to me. This is how you've been towards me. In fact, there's one prophet in the Old Testament where his whole life was just basically one big role play so that God's people, Israel, would understand the way they are to God. So the prophet Hosea was called to go and marry um, <clears throat> an unfaithful woman. And so he, 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 he brings her in and he loves her, but she's continually unfaithful to him, but he keeps taking her back. And it's such a heavy scenario, the whole of the book of Hosea. But God calls his prophet to live that way as a living, breathing illustration of what they are doing to God. So constantly, over and over, they're going after other lovers. They're worshipping other gods. And so in the same way, um, as, as a husband or a wife would feel offended and even jealous if their spouse was to be interested in another, God speaks about his jealousy for us. 
And it's a right jealousy. It's a righteous kind of jealousy. Yeah. Look at, um, look, look at verse 4 in the passage in James here that we've been reading. You'll notice the language there. Sorry, verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us. This is language to help us understand that God longs for us. He's come to live in us by his spirit and he hasn't done that frivolously. He does it so that we would be devoted to him. And you know, our God longs for our devotion. God longs for our affection. Your God longs for your faithfulness. Your God longs for your allegiance and he's worthy of it all because you are now his. And to become a Christian is to step into a covenant relationship where now you are to be exclusively for him. This is pretty big, I reckon. We just kind of walk through that doorway of the word adulterous and you, you, you get a sense of this relationship we've stepped into. It, it gets me thinking, oh, okay, so this is not for mucking around with. You, you don't just be a Christian on the side. We don't just play with church. We don't just muck around with our decisions in life. This is huge. It's huge for God. It needs to be huge for us. This needs to be the number one thing that consumes our life if this is who we are to our God. This is big. Now, James calls these people here in the New Testament adulterous people. Why does he call the Christians in the first century who have been scattered out of Jerusalem into the Gentile areas and started all these new little churches in these Gentile cities, why is he calling them adulterous? Have they begun to worship the idols in those cities? I don't think there's any evidence that that's what they're doing. It doesn't appear as though these people are actually worshipping idols of other gods. They haven't seemed to have changed religions. They don't seem to have publicly rejected Jesus. So, so what have they done that's of the same level that James would say, you adulterous people? Well, look at verse 4. We'll read it again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So that's it. I think that's it. He's calling them adulterous because they fostered this thing called friendship with the world. We've got to dig into that one and we've got to ask whether we do the same thing and whether the same accusation should be levelled at us because friendship with the world doesn't sound that bad, does it? You know, a friendship's a nice thing, isn't it? Um, they don't seem to be worshipping idols. They're just being friends with the world. But apparently, though it's not as obvious, it's more subtle, it's just as serious and offensive to God when his people become friends with the world. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to be friends with the world? Um, it opens up a whole big world and we're only going to be able to just, I'm going to try and shoot down the middle of it. Um, doesn't mean you can't be friends with anyone who's in the world, meaning you can't be friends with anyone who's not a Christian. 
I, I don't think it means that. Yep. Because we're actually called to love our neighbours. We're called to do justice and mercy. We're called to actually love everyone we come across. Yep. So I, I don't think it's don't be friends with anyone in the world because God says, no, you be in the world, but not of the world. Yep. But one little warning on that. Yeah, um, is it I, can I still be friends with people who are not Christians? Absolutely. But you do it carefully. Right? Because you want to acknowledge that even you will be influenced by who you are friends with. We're all influenced by who we spend time with. You will in subtle ways be tempted to adopt their mindset, their way of thinking, their desires, their goals. It will rub off on you. So yes, you be friends. Absolutely. But you do it carefully. You do it aware of your own tendency to wander yourself. But to be friends with the world doesn't mean just to have friends that are in the world. In the first century, the concept of friendship was big. It was bigger than just becoming Facebook friends or following someone on Instagram. The concept of friendship in the first century was, was the concept of we share meals together because we share life together because we think the same as each other and we do the same things with our lives together. That's, that's really at the heart of friendship in the first century. We share things in common. We've got a common mind. So to be friends with the world is to actually kind of look at all those who are living outside of Christ and decide that you're going to love the way they live as well. You're going to love them and the world, and, and you're going to find yourself siding with the world, the world that is actually opposed to God, the people of the world who live without regard for God, thinking they don't need God. To be friends with the world is to lean into that and start to begin to live in the same ways as the world and imitate the world with its worldly wisdom. We looked at it last week in chapter 3. Envy, selfish ambition, it's to develop an allegiance to the world and away from God. It's to, it's to have hearts that run off after the same things that all of your friends who don't know Christ run off after. Do we run after the same things? Do we want the same things? Do we struggle for all the same things? The Bible would call that worldliness. James would call it adultery. He says here it's actually hatred towards God. It's being an enemy of God. But it's so subtle. It's not going to be obvious to us easily. If I just could say to you today, look, just make sure you don't worship, uh, you know, walk into a mosque and start worshipping Allah. You could walk out of here and go, cool, I won't do that this week. That's easy. But this is more subtle. This is in your thoughts. This is in your little decisions. This is in how you spend your time, how you spend your money, becoming friends with the world, becoming more like the world. It's subtle. It's a drift. But it's just as serious. So let's keep digging. What is this friendship with the world thing? It's to think like everyone else around you and to pursue the same goals. And if you do that, you'll feel like you're doing the right thing in our world. Because we're surrounded with people who are actually not living according to God's wisdom. So it won't be obvious. There's a particular aspect of friendship with the world that I think is on view in this passage. Because you could kind of say friendship with the world probably involves lots of areas of life. But there's one bit that's on view in this passage here. And it kind of comes out in verses 1 through to 3. And I'll summarise it by saying it's the desire to have more 
to spend on yourself for your own pleasure, happiness and enjoyment of life. I think that's the big thing that's on view. That's the thing for us to dig into today to see if we too are fostering friendship with the world in the same way. So let's look at these first few verses. Um, What causes fights and quarrels among you? So there's the presenting issue, there's the symptom, but there's a disease lying beneath this that's the real problem. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the real problem is the desires that are going on beneath the surface that cause there to be conflict and fights and quarrels. And look at verse 2. You desire but do not have. I think what that means is you desire to have, but you don't have what you desire, what you really want. And there's the battle. You, you want more and you don't have it. Um, so you kill and you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. So you see what's happening? There's, there's this desire to have, and, and it gets clarified what it is to have, but, but they can't seem to get their hands on it. But they see other people with it, so they covet what others have and want to take it from them, which means they're fighting and quarrelling with each other because they want what they don't have, but all their efforts to try and grab it off each other or grab it off others aren't working and they still don't have what they want. That's the problem deep down, is that desire that's unfulfilled. Now, what is it that they want? What do they want to have? Well, I think that final bit explains it. It says... Um, you do not have because you do not ask. We'll come back to that. When you ask, you, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. We'll come back to that. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So there's the wrong motive. There's the thing that they're trying to have and get. They're trying to get something to spend on their pleasure. So, so I, I think the big thing that's on view in this passage here that is a sign of their friendship with the world, is their desire, it's pretty simple, their desire to get more money to spend on themselves for their own pleasure, happiness and enjoyment of life. Now, I actually think that's one of the easiest things to notice about our society, that you're actually told to do with your life. We're told constantly you need more money, you need to be smarter, you need to work out how to get more so that you can live this life that you know you want to live and you see other people living. It's the enjoyment and the pleasures and whatever it is, you just need more money and then you'll finally be able to live that life and that's where contentment and satisfaction is going to come from. Then you'll be happy with your life. Then you'll be feeling like you're doing the right thing with your days and you won't have wasted your life. This is the spirit of the world that we live in and this is what's on view here and this is friendship with the world. These guys that James is writing to seem to have just bought into the worldly mindset. No, I don't think it's very different from our day. They just seem to have adopted it and to be living with it in their bones. And I don't think it's easy to see how much of the culture that is around us has actually been absorbed by us and working its way out in your life. I actually don't think it's easy to reflect on these things at all. I've really struggled this week to kind of think, how am I being friends with the world? This is hard to see. 
And I actually think the most important things for us to see will be the ones that we're blind to. Again, it's obvious to know if someone's worshipping an idol. But do you know the ways in which you are fostering friendship with the world? Do you know the ways of the desires of your heart that just wants more with the motive of self? And, and whether, it's, whether it's possessions or whether it's just power or whether it's just that lifestyle that you know you want to live, you need money to get it, and that's what's at the centre of your life if you're going to be completely honest. They're told that these guys are believing some, like a deception that um, if you just get more, it'll work. And you need more and you need more for yourself. And, and, and one of the ways we smuggle self into something that sounds nicer is family. So you might think, oh, no, I'm not after myself. But is it just your family that you are working hard to have all these things happen for? It's very similar. You know, because sometimes family is just an extension of your own ego, an extension of your own glory, your own name, and we can just want more for the sake of that. But it's really just selfish ambition. And, and it's deception. We're, we're being deceived by our own desires. We're being deceived by the world that we live in. The, the key deception here is that um, you think that if you get more, it'll make you happy. But we know it's not true, don't we? I mean, everyone knows it's not true. Because you've got more over the years. You've been given more. You've somehow figured out how to get more. And then you find yourself with more in your hands going, well, that didn't do it. But we think, well, maybe the next one will do it. We, just, we know it doesn't work, but we still do it because we're being deceived into thinking that's where contentment comes from. All the while, contentment and satisfaction um, comes not from the gifts but comes from knowing the giver what you're looking for is just in him not any stuff but we get deceived the other kind of form of deception there is that um, the only way to get stuff is to go and get it for yourself and uh, if you need to take it off others to do it even in subtle polite ways just do what you need to do to get it for yourself. That's a deception because the truth is God is the one who provides. Yeah, I mean, you kind of see the doorway into that with halfway through verse 2 where it says, um, you do not have because you do not ask God. So that's why you don't have what you want is because you're not asking God and you're just trying to struggle and strain to get it for yourself. So there's, there's something you're not understanding. There is someone from whom all good things come from. And everything you find yourself with, it's come from his hand. I mean, you get that back in chapter 1, don't you, in verses 16 and 17. Yeah, look, don't... Oh, there you go. Chapter 1, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father in, of the heavenly lights. That's where everything comes from. And if that's the case, if you find yourself in need or want, ask him. Don't wrestle and pinch it or strain and find yourself in ways that are unhelpful to get more for yourself. God owns everything. God has provided what you've got right now. He's the one to go to. But then James says, um, but look, even when you do ask, what does he say there? When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. 
So that doesn't mean that if you just get your motive right, you'll get everything you ask for. <laughs> but he's at least pointing out here for these guys that partly the problem is you're asking with the wrong motive. So what's the wrong motive to ask for things from God for? Well, the wrong motive's there that, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The wrong motive is to follow worldly wisdom, to take on the spirit of our day and to get more for yourself for your own enjoyment. It's called selfish ambition. It gets applauded in our society. You'll be told over and over again, your real problem is you don't have enough selfish ambition. And if you'd only work harder with your own ambition, then you'd get more for yourself. But we get told here, that's the wrong motive. That's the wrong thing to live for. So what's the right motive? What's the right motive to come to God and ask for? Well, the right motive is not no ambition. You're not meant to move from selfish ambition to just, okay, I'm not going to have any ambition in life. I'm just going to float and I'm just going to see what comes my way. Now, the opposite of selfish ambition is actually godly ambition. Yeah? Ask, for, ask for things for God's name, for God's kingdom for God's will. I mean, that's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what I'm going to ask for. And, 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 and you shape your prayers up. And if there's particular things you're asking for, has it got anything to do with that? Has it got anything to do with God? Because we're being called here to an extreme God-centeredness with our lives. It matters more than any kind of lifestyle you'll get to live, anything you'll possess, any power you get from finances that you have. If you centre your life around God and live for him with ambition for him, it'll ultimately be for the good of others if you live with godly ambition. The truth is you exist for him. Um, is this your motive always? Um, is, is the desire behind your asking for things, you know, for God? Is the desire behind your striving for things for the good of his name? Because you've been called into a covenant relationship with him where you are to seek his good above everything else. It's pretty extreme. We are to lay down our lives for the sake of his name. We are to abandon selfish ambition and give ourselves to godly ambition. Or did you come into this Christian relationship simply for all the good things you thought you could get from him? That'll be our tendency. <laughs> Guys, I'm sharing this with you as reflections that come out of my own heart in all of this. On some level, we all fail here. There's no way, even if you've got some good motives in your asking and in your striving, there will be smuggled in there among the good motives for God, self-centred motives. We, we fail, at least on some level, at, at, with this avoiding friendship with the world. Can, can you see yours? I've been trying to reflect on my own. Can you see yours? Don't think about someone else and how you think they're friends with the world and how they just pursue self. No, think about you. Your head, where it goes, your heart, how it thinks, the decisions you make. What lies behind 
your straining and your stressing and your scrapping? What lies behind your prayers? Lord, give me health. That's a fair enough prayer, isn't it? Why? What are you planning on doing with your health if you get it? Lord, let my days be long, you know? Why? What are you going to do with your days? Oh, Lord, please give me that special, that husband, that wife, that special relationship I've always longed for. Why? What are you going to do with your marriage? Please, Lord, give us children. Why? What are you going to do? What's, what's your motive? What's your goal? Sometimes we don't even think about this. We just ask what we want. Oh, Lord, would you give me a job finally? Would you give me money? Would you give me financial security? Would you give us that? Why? What do you want it for? Because if you're anything like me, <laughs> a big part of your motive will just be selfish ambition. And can you see yours? One of the things that always, always helped me to face my brutal failure and acknowledge the wretchedness of my own heart is the fact that I have a gracious God. You know, I've got a God who, who, who I'm in covenant relationship with me, who, who longs for me to be pure and faithful and, and growing. But I tell you what, I can come to him with my failure and he's gracious over and over and over again. So if there's something kind of in you that's resisting anything that's being said tonight, maybe I'm choosing the wrong words, I don't know, usually do sometimes. But if there's a resistance to you going, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like that. I shouldn't be called adulterous. I should never be called a sinner or double-minded. If there's something in you there, what is that hardness? Because whatever that hardness is, that's stopping you from being able to acknowledge your failure before a God who's gracious, which is the relationship we've stepped into, that we'll never find anywhere else in any other, a gracious relationship. I mean, I say, I say that because look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. Oh, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Sorry. Write that on your sheet and take it home. All right. I'm channeling Chris Eakins when I say things like that. He's always said that to me. You get stick that in. Don't smoke. Don't do anything like that. But he gives us more grace. And so, you know, you come to Christ and you get grace as you step into relationship with him. Amazing grace. And, and it's the grace that comes to us through the blood shed on the cross by God's Son that we just celebrated with communion, that blood that was shed is grace for everything you've done in the past that brings you into a relationship, and it's enough grace for everything you're going to do in the future. God gives us more grace. You can keep coming back to him, and there is forgiveness. There's nothing you can do that will ever cause God to step back and go, oh, that'll do. No, I'm done with you. He will keep taking you back. There is grace and there is favour. Or is there? You see, there's grace and there's favour for a particular type of person. 
Look at it. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. God shows grace to the humble. There's more grace for the person who can humbly go, yep, that's me. Yeah, I'm, I'm that. And you can acknowledge your failure. There's grace for, for those who are humble. And I actually think humility is the key sign that you're still in a covenant relationship with your God when you can keep coming back to him and acknowledging your fault, you know, humbly admitting your unfaithfulness to receive grace again and again. I'm going to kind of finish now-ish, um, verses 7 through to 10. Um, actually gets a bit practical with when, you, when you've seen some truth about your own unfaithfulness. You, you come to God and um, the, God's interested in you changing and moving on. Yeah, it's, it's not just grace and, yeah, stay where you are, everything's okay. No, no, you're going to be called to submit again to God. You're going to be called to resist the devil. You know, resist your own desires, resist being friends with the world and resist the devil. You're going to be called to draw near to God, wash your hands, Repent of your sin. We're going to be called to grieve and mourn and wail. This is what we do with our sin when you see it. And I don't know whether there's a little bit of grieving going on. Maybe God's helped you catch a glimpse of something tonight of your own unfaithfulness. Oh, grieve it. Don't, don't push away from it. Acknowledge it. Mourn it. Humbly come back again to your gracious God and Receive and know his grace afresh. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I'm going to give you a minute to scribble or pray or write or just have a moment to think and then I'll pray in just a minute. You just take a moment. We're going to sing again in just a moment, but how about I just lead us in a prayer. Father God, we thank you for your words to us in the scriptures. We thank you even when they're strong because we want to hear reality. We want to hear truth and the truth is brutal. But Lord, please give us the humility to see where we are unfaithful. Please, Lord, give us the strength to acknowledge where we are fostering friendship with a world that is against you. Please, Lord, help us see where we're being adulterous and help us turn, help us repent, help us come back humbly before you to receive grace upon grace and celebrate again your goodness to us. We need the powerful work of your spirit in our lives to enable this to happen. Lord, please overflow. Please do that work in us. Amen.